last couple of weeks since my mom passed away, I've been reminiscing. You guys do that when you lose some? I mean, I think that's natural. You, you reminisce about a lot of things, and I've, and I've been doing a lot of that these last uh, couple of weeks. And what I can tell you is that after all the reminiscing that I've done of good things and bad things, um, I want you all to know that I am so blessed to have had the parents that I had. You, did, you guys never met my dad. My mom came uh, now and then, so you got a chance to meet her. But my dad died about 20 years ago from cancer. My dad was one of the most talented people you'd ever meet. He was, at, he was a cartoonist in his spare time. He actually could have done it as a career. He was that good at it. In fact, when he was in high school, he grew up in, in Montezuma, Iowa, and his town paper actually paid him to to do cartoons for their paper. That's how, I mean, he's, he's really good at it. He also had a, a beautiful voice. He traveled throughout the Midwest when he was young as part of a quartet. And the only reason why he quit that was because he'd get so nervous before uh, each performance that he'd throw up. So he said, no, no, no more of that, you know? You guys, you ever get nervous when you do things like that? Yeah, he was that way. One of the things my dad um, was not, however, was an athlete. I remember as a little boy, I would just beg him to go out and play catch with me, and, uh, and he just wouldn't, probably because he couldn't. So guess who did? My mom did. She had a thousand other things that she could have been doing and probably should have been doing, um, but she'd go out and play catch with me in the yard um, and, until I was the one that said I was tired and wanted to quit. That's a good mom, huh? That's a good mom. My mom grew up in the late 30s and early 40s, and she uh, never had a whole lot, which probably wasn't unusual during that time. Um, but she had to do it without a lot. She had to go to work when she was really young. So when she grew up and, and became uh, a, a mom herself, she uh, made a vow to herself that she would never, she wanted her wanted more than that for her kids. So she would, uh, she would, after she put everybody to bed at night, she would go to work for several hours after that at this little uh, engraving shop that she set up in our basement uh, where she would engrave these little plaques that, you know, that they put on trophies or on memorials or whatever. That's, my mom did that for you. Well, probably not for you, but. I tell you those stories because it helps me to tell those stories. But I tell you those stories specifically today because um, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, if you've read ahead, you know what it's about. It's actually a story about uh, a son and his mama. Actually, it's a story about his son and his mama and about a miracle. It's about a wedding. But there's so much more to this story. It's probably a story you've probably heard lots of times in your life if, you've, uh, or if you're a student of the Bible. But today, we're going we're gonna to delve into this passage of Scripture today together. And we're going to discover what more this story has for all of us. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have your uh, Scripture journals, good job. By the way, if you are new with us and you would like one of these scripture journals, back there by the, by the Miracle Barn is where we, you drop your offerings in. If you're new and you never wondered how we do that, you just drop your, your offerings in the Miracle Barn. Back there on the table, 
we have these um, John Scripture journals, and they've got. We'd love for you to pick them up. Those are our gifts to you. You don't have to pay for them. They're just just take one home. We want everybody in the church to have one. We're going to be studying the Book of John together for two years, so these are going to become a good companion for you, hopefully. Um, let's look at that passage together. John chapter two, starting at verse one. Got it up on the screen, but read it in your in your journals or in your Bibles. It begins like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants then, do whatever he tells you to. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, he said, fill the jars with water. And they did. They filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out, them presuming it's water, right? Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they did. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, he didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom over to him and says, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then they bring out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs or the first of his miracles, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, as I alluded to earlier, there's lots in this story that I want to unpack with you today. The first part is the last part. The first part I want to unpack with you is the last part. We learn in this, in this passage of scripture that this miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee was the first of his public miracles, right? Um, and I've always kind of found that odd. I don't know about you. I found it odd for a couple of reasons. The first reason I find it odd is because it appears Jesus didn't even want to do it. I mean, is that the impression you got from this? You get the impression, I mean, what does he say in verse 4? He says to his mom, he says, what does this have to do with me, woman? My time has not yet come. That just seems, he didn't even, by the way, Little side note, I want you all to know Jesus was not being rude to his mama when he called her woman. It was just a title. It was, it was, so don't get hung up on that, all right? He loved his mama, just like I love my mama. Um, nevertheless, it was still kind of odd, right? Another reason why I found it odd is it seems kind of frivolous. Of all the miracles that Jesus could have chosen as his first public miracle, he chooses to turn water into wine. Why? That seem weird to you? Well, before I can explain to you why I think this was his first miracle, you need to understand some things about miracles. You see, many of us... Um, have an unbiblical understanding of miracles. We think that uh, many of us pray, right? We pray and we ask God for a miracle in our lives or in the life of somebody. That we, that, and, uh, and if God doesn't answer that and give you the miracle, we think, well, 
God, why did you answer this miracle or this prayer and provide a miracle and you didn't over here? What's, what's going on? Well, you've got you to gotta understand the purpose of a miracle before you can begin to answer that question. And the purpose of a miracle is not to, um, generally anyway, it is not to just do a favor for someone. The purpose of a miracle is missional. Now what does that mean? When God chooses to do a miracle, the purpose of the miracle is to further the mission of the gospel. Does that make sense to you? The purpose of the miracle isn't to do um, you or anyone else necessarily a favor. It is to further the cause of the gospel. So then the next question then becomes, well, how did this miracle of turning water into wine at this wedding in Canaan of Galilee further the cause of the gospel? Well, look to verse 11. In verse 11, it says this. It says this, the first of his signs, the first of his miracles, right? Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, it's the second part of this verse that I really want to draw your attention to. Look at how it ends. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. Now, you're thinking, didn't the disciples already believe in him? Yep. We just, if you go back to chapter 1, you find stories how they profess their belief that Jesus is the Messiah already. So what does it mean there? It says, after seeing this manifest of his glory, the disciples believed in him. Listen to me. This is at the beginning of their uh, journey with Jesus, right? Right at the very beginning. They've professed their faith in Christ But they had no idea where that faith was ultimately going to lead them, did they? Jesus knew, because Jesus is God. But they didn't know. For them to fulfill the purpose that God had created them for, they were going to need a very strong faith to to trod the path that had been laid out for them, which would include persecution, and for most of them, martyrdom. For them to remain strong in the faith, they needed to have a firm foundation. This miracle, the the missional purpose of this miracle, was laying a firm foundation for the faith of these disciples who Their faith is rippling throughout this place even today. That's how important that miracle was, missionally. Every time you, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you do it by faith. But if you're like me, as you've lived out your faith, every time God has manifested in you or in your life or you've seen God move in your life, your faith has been strengthened each time. That's the way it's supposed to be. The Scripture tells us that we are in the process of living out our salvation. This is a journey. And every step of the way, God is preparing you for your purpose. And every time you see God manifest in your life, through an answered prayer of one form or another, 
He's strengthening the faith that you have to fulfill your purpose. The second um, element of this passage I want to draw your attention to is uh, one that I, don't, I bet you've never paid any attention to at all. It's the part that, about the servants. Remember, uh, Jesus' Jesus's mom says to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it, right? And Jesus calls the, the, uh, the servants to him and says, I want you to take these, these jars and I want you to fill them up with water. And they fill them to the brim, right? Now, here's another why question. Why did Jesus involve the servants in all of this? We've already established that Jesus is God, right? Not only does Jesus know everything because He is God, which is omniscient, but He is also omnipotent, means He's all-powerful. He can do all things. If Jesus had wanted to, He could have snapped His fingers and those jars would have been filled. So why involve the servants? Because by involving the servants, they were able then to participate in the blessing. You see, that's, that, I, I would say this, that same lesson belongs to all of you. God doesn't need you. Did you know that? He loves you, but He doesn't need you. He could, he, the Scripture says that He could raise the rocks up to praise Him and proclaim Him if He wanted to. But instead, God chooses you to proclaim Him and honor Him. Why? Because He wants you to participate in the blessing. There is no greater calling in the world than to be able to be Jesus to another human being. That's just simply the truth. I'm t I tell you what, what I see happening all the time is I see people being Jesus to somebody and I'll go up to them just because I think it's beautiful and I'll say, thank you for doing that. Thank you for being Jesus. And nine times out of ten, that person will turn to me and say, you know, I, I end up getting blessed more by doing it than the person that I've been trying to bless. You see how that works? Being a blessing to someone else, ministering to someone else, ends up being more of a blessing to you than it is to them. Why? Because God wants you to participate in this beautiful calling, this beautiful thing called sharing the gospel with the world. There's one last thing that I want to share with you from this story that I've been thinking a lot since my mom passed. Um, it's the part of the story where, where the master of the feast is, um, uh, he, gets the, he gets the water, which he thinks, he doesn't know it's not where it's come from, right? He knows that, he assumes it's just the wine. The servants know where it came from. But he gets this, this wine and he calls over the, the, um, um, the groom and he says to him, he says, dude, in most of these shindigs, they talked like that back then, trust me. <laughs> they'll bring, they'll bring the, the good wine out first. And then he looks at the groom and he says, but you have saved the best for last. Because he doesn't know where it's come from. And it wasn't the groom that had saved the best for last, was it? Who was it? It was Jesus. Jesus is the one that had saved the best for last. And as I was thinking about that these last couple of weeks, 
about my mom and all that. I'm going, he does, doesn't he? He saves the best for last. But the problem that I see is that most of you don't believe that. Most human beings live their life believing that this is the best that it gets. We do. Trust me. We, we do our best trying to get the most good out of life that we can get. We, we spend time and money trying to extend this life for as long as we can. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Nothing wrong at all. Unless all of that is driven by the thought that this life is the best and death is a punishment. Now, I understand that, that way of thinking if you're not a Christian. I do. Because if you don't have Jesus, you don't have hope. But I see Christians reacting like that too. And it makes me wonder, do you believe that the best is yet to come because it is. And if the best is yet to come, not because you've lived such a good life, but because Jesus is good. That's why the best is yet to come for you. You, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior, can trust that the best is yet to come. If you haven't, then I understand why you might think Death is a curse and a punishment. But you don't have to. Do you believe the best is yet to come? If you don't believe, today is the day to believe it. And this is how to believe. Number one, you must confess that you were a sinner. You have fallen short of, what, of the expectation that God has for you. And you know what God expects out of all human beings? Perfection. And you can't do it, and neither can I. You repent that you were a sinner. And once, once you have confessed that you're a sinner, you repent and you turn to the cross where forgiveness has already been bought on your behalf, just waiting for you to receive it. And then third, you must submit to Jesus as your Lord. Many of us uh, love the idea that Jesus is our Savior. We struggle with the idea that Jesus is our Lord but the truth of the matter is they have to go together. You must confess you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and submit to Him. And when you do, you can trust and believe that the best is yet to come. Amen. If you've never prayed that prayer, right over there is our prayer room. It be our privilege as pastors to pray that prayer with you. You don't need us to pray that prayer, by the way. All you need is Jesus. But if you'd like help praying that prayer, we'd love to pray that with you. Or if there's something else going on in your life that you need prayer for, meet you right over there.